Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 108, End of Exile. Last week, we left off with Stalin having been put into a place of prominence within the RSDLP, at least while the real leadership was occupied with foreign or internal exile. But just as he was making moves to reach a spot at the top, he got caught yet again and sent back out to exile in March 1910. Upon his return to banishment in the Vologda province, he found exile even more unbearable. The politicals had largely given up, the RSDLP was at the nadir of its fortunes, and everybody just sat around getting sad drunk. He tried again to escape in December 1910, but this time the funds being sent to him in order to make his journey back were stolen. He would later get his revenge when he had the offending middleman who had stolen the money killed in 1937. But this left him stuck, and given how close he was to release, he opted just to serve out the rest of his sentence. This he did without further incident, and was transferred back to civilization by the authorities in July 1911. He wound up in the city of Ologda, from which the province took its name. He was barred for five years from returning to the Caucasus, and was required to remain in Vologda on a kind of probation. He ignored this and went to St. Petersburg to start work at the national party level. He was almost immediately picked up in September 1911 and was sentenced to yet another spell of exile, this time three years. At this point, the charm days of hopping fences and hiding out in graveyards were over, and Stalin's luck had run out. This is also kind of where the Tsarist regime failed themselves, in that they were perfectly willing to be authoritarian but lacked the wherewithal to just end the thing pestering them. Stalin himself probably realized that further attempts at escape were pointless and promised he'd head back to Vologda and into exile voluntarily, which meant that he was released from custody to later present himself in December 1911. He promptly lost the Akrana agents tailing him and vanished for 10 days. He spent it collecting money before actually appearing voluntarily in Vologda and settled into his urban exile, living within the city. This exile played a little bit differently and was a lot nicer because he pretty much could live about the city, just he had to stay within it. He probably figured that given how bad things were going with the party, that being away wasn't the worst thing in the world. The fortunes of the party, though, were beginning to shift, albeit slowly and slightly at first. In January 1912, the RSDLP had a party conference in Prague. Because the split between the two factions had become irreconcilable, it was attended by almost all Bolsheviks. Under Lenin's auspices, the conference declared that the old Central Committee of the Party was defunct and that the meeting would assume the powers of a full conference regardless of the absence of the Mensheviks, whereupon a new Central Committee was created under the full control of the Bolsheviks. In one fell swoop, Lenin had seized the RSDLP. It was during this, too, that a Russian bureau to the Central Committee was formally created for leaders who were actually in Russia, and both Lenin and Zinoviev made sure to secure Stalin a spot on the committee. For them, he was a useful outsider, dependent on them for his position in the party, and also as a Georgian, he would be a demonstration that non-Russians would be taken seriously in the party. Suddenly, Stalin was a colleague of Lenin and the other big names. Upon getting the good news, Stalin packed his bags and headed out once again. He bribed local cops and was on a train to Moscow on the early morning of February 29th. While his first order of business was to lose what tales he had picked up and crash with some friends, 
his formal assignment was to upgrade the national Bolshevik newspaper. It had been decided to convert the Zvezda Weekly into a daily, which also entailed a rebrand. It would be called Pravda, which you might have heard of, which, if you haven't, it means truth. It would be the communist newspaper all through the Soviet Union's existence. His stint as editor, though, was delayed on account of the Akrana once again being on to him. By March 16th, he was back down in Tiflis, desperately trying not to be noticed. He wouldn't be there long, though, as he was now a known quantity, and the party wanted him closer to the center of the action in the empire. If he was to issue commands from the Central Committee, he would need to go back to St. Petersburg. He returned there via Moscow in mid-April, dodging the Akrana and traitors within the Bolsheviks all the way. His new prominence was known to the authorities by this time, and they wouldn't give up on their quarry. He secured a place to stay with a Bolshevik member of the Duma, who, because of his elected office, enjoyed immunities from police raids within his home, which was really convenient. From there, Stalin finally got Pravda going in three small rooms, set aside for the paper's production. The timing of the paper finally getting off the ground was fortuitous. Back on April the 4th, the massacre of 150 workers at the Lena Goldfields had occurred, and the empire was once again roiled in fury at the regime. It was also at this time working on Pravda that he met Vyacheslav Skryabin, a.k.a. Molotov. According to Molotov's recollections, their first meeting in a small courtyard was a memorable one. Stalin appeared from the shadows like some kind of communist Batman, went straight into Pravda business, and once that was concluded, vanished back into the shadows. Molotov thought it was pretty cool. It would also be the start of a working relationship that occasionally bordered on friendship that would last for four decades. On April 22, 1912, after much delay, Pravda's first issue rolled out. Celebrations at the launch would have been premature, though, as Stalin was picked up once again in May. He was sentenced to exile yet again, this time to Narim, in the Ob River Valley in central Siberia. He wound up meeting Yakov Sverdlov, who would eventually be the party's de facto secretary in the early days after the October Revolution. In July 1912, though, he was another Central Committee member, letting it force through to stack that body in his favor, just like Stalin. The odd couple immediately got on each other's nerves, with Stalin being the lazy, slobby type and Sverdlov being the fussy one. Luckily, they were both destined to escape together in September, which for Stalin meant just 38 days were spent in Narum, his shortest exile ever. Within two weeks, he was back in St. Petersburg. For old times' sake, he even spent a couple weeks back in Tiflis to direct what remained of the outfit one last time. Around 20 members launched a final bomb attack on September 24th, led once again by Kamo during his stint outside of custody, and it didn't go great. They tried to seize a mail coach, but even with bombs and a numbers advantage, the soldiers defending it repulsed them. From there, the regime cracked down on the gang, breaking it apart definitively. Stalin scampered back to St. Petersburg, his banded days now forcibly behind him. He would return to his Pravda gig and focus more on the desk work he had previously looked down upon. The work would bring him to butt heads with Lenin, though. His distant mentor continued to advocate non-cooperation with the Mensheviks. While Stalin had come around to the exact opposite, since the combined RSDLP was still mostly in ruins. Lenin could easily push factionalism while bumming around Central Europe, but Stalin and his comrades were in the thick of it getting arrested left and right back in Russia. 
it didn't make sense to remain divided while the Bolsheviks were at their weakest. Plus, in the Duma elections, both factions got six representatives elected, and Stalin didn't see a point antagonizing the Mensheviks when they could get more influence collectively. They also disagreed on the question of nationalities, which, as I've discussed in previous episodes, Lenin wanted a lighter hand on the minorities, Stalin a stronger one. This didn't sit well with Lenin, and when the Bolshevik reps and Stalin himself traveled to Krakow in November 1912 to meet up with them, they couldn't come to an agreement on either matter, which did cause Lenin to have some second thoughts about his Georgian proxy producing his contradictory content in the pages of Pravda. Stalin was actually summoned back to Krakow in December, and while the two once again couldn't agree, Lenin waylaid him with the offer of Stalin writing a formal manifesto on the question of nationalities in Russia. Sverdlov took up running Pravda, while Stalin was given the get-rid-of-the-guy promotion of working on the party's official platform, which Stalin accepted, because while it did keep him away from other work, it did also give him a more prominent place than his fellows back in Russia. But he wouldn't be going back there while writing. To give him time and space, he was sent to stay with the family of well-off sympathizers in Vienna, where he actually met Nikolai Bukharin, whom he got on very well with, and Trotsky, whom he very much did not. Still, he was there for work and not for socializing, and in early 1913 had completed his article, where he had retreated on the nationalities issue in favor of Lenin, who warmly approved it. He returned to St. Petersburg and had it published in March 1913 under the alias Stalin. He had used a lot of names, and even at this point, guys like Lenin and Zinoviev, who had only met him a handful of times, only really knew him as Koba or Ivanovich or some other codename, which would actually be a problem later uh, once he was back in exile, and nobody could actually find him because they didn't know his real name. But the article was a success, and the name Stalin stuck. His eventual return to St. Petersburg after completing the manifesto didn't go terribly well. The Akrona still weren't messing around, and the party was as hollowed out as ever. Being caught was a foregone conclusion, and his article hadn't even been published before Stalin was arrested and sent back east. This time, the sentence was four years in Siberia, and there would be no kid gloves with this one. He was sent to Turakonsk, just below the Arctic Circle and far enough away from a railway that escape really was impossible. He reached the regional capital and then proceeded by boat for almost a month before reaching his due digs. He wound up in the village of Costino, although the exact location hardly matters. Just imagine a frozen and forested hellscape and you got it. It was the same region Sverdlov was exiled to at the same time, and they would visit each other, both reaching out to Lenin to try and secure money to use to escape, somehow. Too bad their go-between back in St. Petersburg was the last Bolshevik leader unarrested, and was also the Akrona agent who had sold both of them out. Stalin still got money forwarded to him and clothes packages as well, but the Akrona weren't going to let him go this time. When the gifts started flowing in, they moved both him and Sverdlov even further north, this time past the Arctic Circle. Conditions were even worse, and all pretense to civilization were abandoned. Both men were bunked together with a local family, forced to share a room in what was effectively a hut. The two again got on each other's nerves, and as soon as the spring thaw set in, Stalin found new lodgings. He took to the locals who lived as hunters and fishermen to survive. 
It was a simple life that Stalin would later regale his comrades with stories about, over and over again, until his fellows, very quietly, got terribly sick of them. As the years ticked on, Stalin would present himself as a mighty hunter and fisherman of the Siberian wastes, although those stories were unsubstantiated, to say the least. He would have had to have engaged in some of those activities, but over time he would claim to have killed dozens of reindeer in one hunt, and the fish approached leviathan sizes. Stalin, you see, was a vain kind of guy and loved to brag. The years would pass largely in this manner, with Stalin being allowed to move around relatively vast distances to other villages in order to pay visits to other exiles. Among them was Lev Kamenev, who had been exiled when the Bolsheviks advocated Russia losing World War I in order to spur revolution. Kamenev was placed on a farcical trial among the exiles due to his disagreements with Lenin, which goes to show the instinct for internal conflict didn't diminish out in the wastes. But nothing came of it as Stalin abstained from the vote. The whole thing was mostly an opportunity for Stalin to dress Kamenev down. He didn't actually want to ostracize someone who might be an ally one day. So, hunting and bickering was the order of the day. And, oh yeah, he was once again in a relationship with a local during these years. A young teen named Lydia, with whom he conceived two children, though only one made it. He was a son named Alexander, who would never know his father and was yet another bastard Stalin never took an interest in. I know I've been skipping over most of Stalin's affairs, but that's because they all follow the same pattern of him leading his partner on, then when it's time to move on, ditching out on them, oftentimes leaving them pregnant. I mention this one because, holy hell, Lydia was underage by every standard of even those distant days, being only 14 when they met, and the relationship went on for years. It was, strictly speaking, legal in Russia, but yeesh. And of course, she was abandoned like all the others. As in October 1916, Stalin and the other exiles were called up for military service in Russia's armies. If you're wondering just why exactly the Tsarist regime was going so far as to press these most unreliable defenders to its cause, well, that's good, because moves like that were really self-defeating. The autocracy had a pathological desire to keep a pointlessly huge army in the field during World War I, even as the demands to sustain one drained the country of manpower and sucked up precious resources. All the while, the army itself became more and more unreliable. The exiles, understandably, weren't enthusiastic about the news, and owing to the administration's ongoing collapse, they were left to report to the enlistment stations on their own with no escort. Once assembled, the exiles took their sweet time traveling across Siberia, stopping in to rest and party in every town along the way. By the time they reached their enlistment station in early February, Russia was on the verge of revolution, and the government had just given many Bolsheviks a free ride back west. Stalin did not join them, being considered unfit by the army due to his arm. Stalin, again being a vain fellow, was annoyed by the judgment, even though he had no intention of fighting for the Tsar. He had not made the trip in vain, though, and it was allowed to settle in the small town of Achinsk, along the Trans-Siberian Railway. But he didn't stay long, as by early March, news came in of something extraordinary. The Tsar had abdicated. The autocracy was gone. By March 12th, he had made it back to Petrograd. The situation was in that ambiguous state of flux where the conservatives and liberals controlled the government, but the Petrograd Soviet, dominated by the two factions of the RSDLP and the SRs, 
hovered right there as a shadow legislature to the more formal Duma. Stalin would not need to hide this time. The police had curtailed their oppressions, and the Akrana were dissolved. The Bolshevik party was not terribly well-positioned to take advantage of the revolution, though. There were only some 25,000 members across the whole country, and its biggest players were still abroad. When Stalin arrived, he had Kamenev with him, and the two quickly took over Pravda's operations, nudging out the more junior Molotov who'd been running it, and who would later report the nudging was done in the nicest possible way. Their assumption of leadership was marked by directing the party in a cautious direction, opting to work with the provisional government and perhaps even within the liberalized system alongside their fellow leftists. This was not the message being pushed by Lenin from Switzerland. He wanted active resistance to the government and to bring the remnants of old Russia down completely. It wasn't long before Lenin would arrive to have a little reckoning with his lieutenants. He arrived alongside his wife Krupskaya and Zinoviev in early April. Without even getting off the train, he met with Stalin and browbeat him into falling into line. Kamenev might have been able to stick to his own line in the face of Lenin's rage, but he was left isolated among the Bolsheviks. Lenin proceeded to go on his tour of the Bolsheviks and workers of the city, haranguing them all about the dangers of cooperation and that there was still a lot of revolution left to unleash. The vehemence Lenin showed off totally overwhelmed Stalin and left the other Bolsheviks worried about the hard line he was taking. His submission to Lenin, though, was not without benefits, as he was the third selection to the Bolshevik Central Committee, that leadership organ of the group, behind only Lenin and Zinoviev, which alongside those two and Kamenev made him a top leader of the party. Admittedly, a party that was still small and without an extensive base of support, but Lenin's extremism would, as we all know, pay dividends when the status quo failed. And Stalin was right there to benefit from his master's success, offering his skills in management and organization. While he was still a success as a public speaker with workers who didn't want the over-intellectual speeches of, say, Trotsky, he also didn't have the razzle-dazzle that the other top guys had. Among the Bolshevik leaders, he became the quiet one. In smaller venues, he might have carried a room, but he was rolling with the big boys now and focused on building those interpersonal relationships that would carry him the rest of the way to the top. But that was all for an uncertain future, for in the months leading up to October, the Bolsheviks nearly destroyed themselves. With the provisional government failing to address the popular demands of the masses, it began to fall apart. The July Days uprising broke out, and while Stalin definitely played a role in nudging it on, he did the classic Stalin thing of not actually being on the scene when it took place. He was also one of many Bolshevik leaders who got cold feet and wanted to stand the whole thing down once it became clear how big it was and how little control they actually had over it. This fiasco went nowhere and put the party back on the run again. And while Lenin was the main target of the provisional government's wrath, Stalin took care to make himself scarce on the streets. With Lenin in partial exile in Finland, it fell to him and Sverdlov, once again finding themselves stuck with each other, to manage the party and hold things together as the government cracked down on them. Luckily for Stalin, and as you might remember from previous episodes, the provisional government was in no shape for even a desperately needed crackdown. He carried on with his work in the party and on Pravda, as Lenin began to reemerge and the whole Kornilov affair drove a stake through the last of the provisional government's support. By mid-September, Kerensky's position was so weak that Lenin called for the Bolsheviks to try again with toppling the government. I've already covered the details of the October Revolution, and won't go over them again here, ditto on the Civil War. 
but I will quickly cover some events from Stalin's perspective that I might not have covered in the previous episodes, so you'll have to forgive me some bouncing around here. As always, he was leaned on by Lenin as somebody who got results, a troubleshooter, and in this case, it was because he was willing to work for days at a time helping organize the new government and making sure that everybody was tasked appropriately and knew what they should be working towards. Which sounds straightforward, but none of them had ever run a government before. Stalin certainly hadn't. But he was really, really good at getting people into the proper roles and making sure that they worked everything out. He didn't command any troops, something that Trotsky would needle him about later, but remained indispensable all the same. And as Lenin grew colder, tolerating dissent less and less, creating the Cheka, approving state violence to maintain control, Stalin became even more useful, because Stalin didn't shrink from violence. The onset of the revolution also signaled his personal life becoming somewhat normalized again. Because once the Bolsheviks seized control of the government, Stalin was appointed Commissar of People's Affairs, basically a ministry that specialized in relations between the outlying non-Russian minorities and the government center. Now that he had an actual job with actual responsibilities, he needed a secretary. And he picked out Nadezhda Aliluviva, the daughter of an old Georgian comrade. Over the years, Stalin had hidden out with the family on a number of occasions, but had not seen the kids since they were very small. However, he adopted the hideout with the Aleluveyas in the aftermath of the July days, where he made the acquaintance of the now 16, Nadezhda. They grew close, and when it came time for Stalin to take his commissar position, he brought her along as his secretary. She would constantly be at his side, she the teenager, he almost 40. While she did accompany him initially on his lengthy deployment to Tsaritsyn in early 1918, she didn't remain long there with him, opting to head back to Moscow. While the Civil War kept them apart, they became a couple and were married in early 1919. Their marriage, unfortunately, would not be a happy one. Stalin couldn't let go of his need for control and wanted Nadezhda at home and not working in the offices of the Bolsheviks. She resisted this and arranged to be transferred to Lenin's office instead, something that irked Stalin greatly. So much so that when it came time to reduce the Bolshevik Party's membership count to cut the bloat, her name found its way on the list, which for someone who was the daughter of an old comrade and a committed Bolshevik in her own right, that was really a slap in the face. She was eventually readmitted, but only after Lenin's personal intervention. And it was going to be like that for the next unhappy decade plus. But gaining a new wife was probably not the main issue on Stalin's mind. No, the main thing on Stalin's mind was countering the growing influence of Trotsky, while building up his own base of support. The two had always despised each other, with Stalin being the cold, provincial, behind-the-scenes guy, while Trotsky was an excitable intellectual who, despite his nebbish appearance, could command the passions of a crowd. Stalin probably thought himself the more probable military commander, seeing as how he had led his old outfit and engineered endless street battles. But as it turned out, the intellectual Trotsky was the one to rise to the occasion of the Civil War. He became war commissar and, as laid out in earlier episodes, built the Red Army into the force needed to save Soviet Russia. And Stalin? Stalin kept his prominence in leadership, but reaped little glory from the battlefield. His tenure in Tsaritsyn was nearly a disaster, and his most notable stance when it came to running the military was in getting rid of the Tsarist-era officers who were helping keep the army together. 
but the Tsarist officers were almost beside the point. The point was that Trotsky supported their use, so Stalin had to naturally oppose it. That opposition became muted when Stalin and Voroshilov almost lost Tsaritsyn. The so-called military opposition that Stalin led came under fire at the Eighth Party Congress, and while Lenin declined to punish Stalin for his failures, Trotsky's military policies triumphed. It would only be in the summer of 1919, against the backdrop of the white onslaught, that Stalin made a partial comeback on military affairs. And even then, Stalin was only convinced that the party apparatus, including the commissars deployed with the army, would be considered to have equal standing with the military. This decision was Lenin's way of checking Trotsky's potential power. Especially since going into the winter of 1919, the Whites had largely been destroyed, and Trotsky, who had personally saved Petrograd, was riding high. Critically, though, Trotsky had done nothing to secure his own power base. He would not be war commissar forever, and politically he ignored the squabbles of his fellows, preferring to remain pure of inter-party conflict. This was all well and good while Lenin was in fair health, but left him dangerously exposed if Lenin were to be incapacitated. Because it wasn't just Stalin that hated Trotsky. Zinoviev and Kamenev both despised him as well, while Bukharin was in opposition to him over the eventual NEP policies. It didn't help also that Trotsky declined positions in the Subnarkum, where he could have found a place of support, or that he ignored Stalin's maneuverings as General Secretary of the Communist Party once his rival was appointed there in 1922. All this added up to Stalin's most capable rival already being outmaneuvered before their eventual struggle for power even began. And that appointment to General Secretary was absolutely vital to Stalin, as his own position was mixed in the waning years of the Civil War. Lenin still saw him as indispensable, hence his appointment in the first place, but Stalin again caused a ruckus amid military disaster during the Polish adventure, blatantly ignoring orders from above out of petulant spite. Politically, he was bickering with Lenin over the status of non-Russian peoples as well. But then, Lenin fell ill and everything changed. Lenin himself came to realize that he might not be around much longer, and when Stalin started becoming more aggressive, even with him, Lenin started thinking about the need for balance in the party leadership. While he himself was effectively dictator at that point, he hadn't intended any one of his underlings to govern the same way he had. And even then, his manner of governing was a far cry from what Stalin's would become. Lenin still allowed open debate and disagreement, so long as nobody tried to splinter the party. But as I've described previously, the Communist Party had grown to rule the government and military, and Stalin, by Lenin's own actions, was effectively in command of the party. His efforts to maybe rein in Stalin and his growing clique were stymied by Trotsky's refusal of government appointments. By the time Lenin suffered the stroke that would incapacitate him for the rest of his life in late 1922, it was largely too late to do anything. Because nobody else had stepped up into a true leadership role, Stalin's path to power was by then open. Tragically, his comrades in the Bolshevik leadership, the Kamenevs and Zinovievs of the world, didn't see it coming. They were blinded by their own preference to rule by committee and by their delusions that their shared experiences as political misfits, exiles, and underdogs gave them a bond that would prevent them from preying on each other. But they did not reckon with Stalin, who had survived not through committees or camaraderie, but through conspiracy, violence, and ignoring boundaries. Next week, we'll pick up just after Lenin's passing, 
as the new Soviet Union entered delicately into a world without its first leader. Stalin would not have full control right away, but rather slowly assembled it over the course of six years, picking off his old comrades all along the way. This is where the biography aspect is going to be played down, as the power struggle played out alongside developments in the nation as a whole. Which means that next week is going to be much more a political history rather than a personal one. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.